0: I'm fascinated by how much people are fascinated with knowing where they come from. The whole direct-to-consumer DNA testing market business thing is, it's really fascinating to me. I've seen the ads on Facebook and on YouTube. They send you a little Q-tip in the mail and you swap the inside of your cheek and they check your DNA and they tell you what ethnicities make up your DNA and Companies like Ancestry.com, they go through your family tree and they look through public records and they help you find out who you're related to. In fact, Ancestry.com in 2017 shared that they had generated $1 billion in sales. Billion with a B. That is a crazy amount of money, but that's the value that people have placed on knowing their origin story. Because knowing your beginning goes beyond an understanding of the mechanics or facts or data like I was born at this date at a hospital, and these are my relatives, but knowing the beginning has a powerful worldview implication. Now, your worldview is just the story that you believe to be true about the world, describes what's right, what's wrong, and what's the solution. It answers the deepest affections and questions of the soul. See, the human race has an origin story it's powerful it's destiny shaping and it's possibility releasing but what if I told you that so many in the church have missed it because we've been focused on all of the wrong things my name is Adam Shaw and this this is The Restorationist everybody thanks for listening thanks for sharing thanks for liking thanks for telling your friends about this podcast because of you the restorationist has appeared on 194 charts since we started this journey together and most recently the nation of japan appeared on two charts in the nation of japan so kenichiwa hello my friends in japan that's all of the Japanese words that I know. That's all of them. <laughs> I uh, tried to figure out a few others, but um, let's be honest: the way I sounded and the way Google Translate said I was supposed to sound, it was just not worth it. Um, so, thank you to everybody for listening. How to get back on track today? Today, I'm really excited about the podcast because we're talking about the power of an origin story. We're talking about the power of an origin story, and because. Your story, whatever that story may be, or your sense of it, has the ability to become the default filter in your soul, in your mind, through which you see, you look at, you interpret the world. If you have a good story, it can fill you with a tremendous sense of confidence, a sense of duty and tenacity. You can say things like, well, they got through it, they got through the depression, my grandpa was a soldier. He fought in the First World War. He had to deal with all of these problems. That's the kind of family, that's the kind of name we got. If they got through it, so can I. You can also say I, I come from a family of fighters. I come from a family that knows how to you know, pull themselves up out of adversity and out of the dirt. If mom could go through that, well, I can do this too. If you got a good story, it's super powerful. It can really shape you and fill you with tremendous confidence. But if you have a bad story, well, that bad story can be just as bad as a good story can be good. If your story is bad, if you've got a dysfunctional family history, if you've got a dysfunctional family tree, if you've got a bad origin story, you feel trapped by that story. You know everyone in my family is this. everyone in my family is angry. Everyone in my family can't hold down a job. Everyone in our family is full of anger. Everyone in our family is so dysfunctional, and everyone in our family their marriages they never last and so, as a result of a bad story, you spend your whole life responding to the identity you feel like you've been given through that story. so you try to be different. Everything is a knee jerk reaction to the narrative that you've been handed, and, and you resist everything that serves as the backdrop for your life, trying to shake it, shed it, get rid of it. This is the power of an origin story. Now again, as I mentioned in the lead-in, in the intro, the Christians, we have an origin story. We believe that that origin story is the story of the whole of the human race, and it's the story that is found at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But, but here's the thought. What if we've missed the biggest points of the story because we've been focused on all of the wrong things? What if we've been fixated on the wrong stuff so much that we have missed the biggest point? See, the Bible is so concerned about your worldview. The Bible is concerned about the story you believe to be true, the story that answers the questions of what's right, what's wrong, what's the solution. And I think that in the modern era, we lose the forest for the trees with so many of these narrative texts in the Bible. We fixate on answering temporary, immediate questions when the Scripture is trying to focus us and focus our minds on discovering the answer to eternal paradigm-shifting questions. Let me, let, me, let me just come out and say it. At the end of the day, what difference will it make if you finally settle the issue of is it seven literal days or are the days symbolic? How much of a big impact is it going to make on the forward direction of the kingdom of God in your life if you answer once and for all with great certitude the age of the universe? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. These, these are important questions and they're very relevant questions for us today. They're questions that I have studied and I'm studying more and I and I hope to hopefully at one point have content for you in the future. But I'm not I'm not confident. These are the most important questions that we need to be asking when it comes to the construction of a biblical worldview. I'm not convinced that Genesis was primarily written to address Charles Darwin. Dismount him from his big old high horse. A philosophy that is thousands of years removed from the book. So, for the next two episodes, we're going to be looking at the world view implications of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. So, I guess the very first place to start is asking yourselves, what what does Genesis mean? Well, Genesis means origins, the point at which something begins. And Genesis is the launch pad of the whole Bible. And the concepts found in the first two chapters, or I should say the first three chapters of the Bible, serve as the starting place for how we are to understand everything, God, the world, ourselves, the purpose of it all, But in order to appreciate how incredible and how worldview-shifting Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, we've got to understand that this book was not written in a vacuum. This book was not just written in a vacuum that fell out of the sky and miraculously appeared in our Bible. It was written within a historical context. It was written by Moses to the children of Israel after they had exited Egypt. And the children of Israel, at the time of the writing of the book of Genesis did not live in a magic bubble where only they and God existed. They were surrounded by people, and they had lived for 400 years as slaves in a culture where they were immersed in belief systems that were rooted in very different origin stories. And so in order for us to appreciate the worldview significance of Genesis, we need to go back in time... And we need to look at the context that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 arises out of. And we need to specifically look at those pagan stories that surrounded the nation of Israel and contrast Genesis with them. And when we contrast the pagan story with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we can begin to appreciate just how unique the Bible is and how profoundly it answers our deepest questions. So for this first installment of this mini-series called Origin Stories, the very first pagan story that we're going to look at is Numa Elish. Enuma Elish. Now, Enuma Elish was a Mesopotamian story, and it's very, very old, and there are chances that it predates the writing of the book of Genesis, because while there would have been oral tradition from Adam and Eve on downward, we believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and so the writing of Enuma Elish predates the historical time period that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Enuma Elisha is a really interesting story. It begins by saying, before anything was named. Now, some historians argue that to the Mesopotamian mind, naming a thing was to declare its existence, but to be honest, I'm not too sure about that. It's not clear if the idea of something coming from nothing or even the idea of nothing existed in their worldview, but anyways, that's, that's me geeking out. Um... So before anything was named, the story begins, there were two divine beings. There was Apsu, the divine person of fresh waters and Tiamat, the female uh, person of uh, marine waters. And to be frank, they were lonely, and they hooked up, and, and they procreated. And their mating produces a second generation of gods, so Enuma Elish says. Lamu and Lahamu, and they are the dirt in the water. Then comes a third generation, Anshar and Kishar, the horizon, and then Anu, the god of heaven, and following Anu, Enki. But we got problems in the story. You're reading and you're like, okay, Tiamat and Apsu, they start having all these little baby gods. But as these gods begin to develop, we got problems. See, Apsu is not able to sleep, Anuma Ali says, because the little younger baby gods are making way too much noise. And all parents of newborns, you can say amen on that. Way too noisy. And despite his wife's protests, Apsu is so enraged, so enraged at the crying of all of the little baby gods that he plans on killing them. He's going to kill all the baby gods. But Enki places a spell on him and then kills him. So Tiamat gets mad and she pledges to kill the baby gods because they took her man. But before she does, she gets herself a new man, Kingu, no idea where he comes from. Like a soap opera homie just shows up with no explanation. With dramatic music and all. So then Enki according to Enuma Elish, has a son, don't know how or from who, incest was very, very common in these old Asian stories, Enki has a son named Marduk, yes, the pagan god Marduk, and Marduk decides that he is going to fight Tiamat, so he, he fights her, he goes to war with her, he beats her up, He opens up a can on his own grandmother. I'm reading this story. I'm like, this is crazy. Off the top rope, team death match, gives her the people's elbow, boom. Marduk kills grandmama. And then he chops up her body, hacks her carcass into pieces. He dismembers his nana. We have gone from As the World Turns to Game of Thrones like super, super fast. These stories were wild. And with one half of her body, he makes the earth. And with the other half of her hacked up carcass, he makes the sky. And then Marduk sits back and he demands that all of the other gods build him a new home because I killed bad grandma. But they get mad and they're like, we ain't doing no work, so then he takes, he takes Tiamat's former new husband Kingu, and slaughters him, and then uses his blood to make humans, and now the humans will build Marduk a new home. And humans will now be the slaves of the gods, and then they all eat dinner at a party. The end. That is, in a nutshell, Anuma Alish. This is more drama than all of the reality shows combined. This has more drama, more violence, more weirdness than any you know, strange freakazoid at HBO could ever, ever come up with. And this was one of the contemporary creation myths that were believed by the surrounding nations that were surrounding the children of, Of Israel. So let's contrast Genesis 1 with Enuma Elish and see what giant worldview implications arise from the comparison of these two stories. So I've read to you chunks and explained to you Enuma Elish. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here, in these first few opening statements, we are introduced to the biblical concept of time. Anuma Elish begins with saying, Before everything or anything was named. But Genesis 1.1 is extremely clear. It says, in the beginning, God created. We're introduced here to the biblical concept of time, and we learn, we learn, sorry Disney Plus fans, we learn that the Lion King is wrong. Time is not a cycle, it's not a circle, but it has a beginning point. This stands in stark contrast with the pagan view of time. See, the pagan view of time, the the view of the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, is that time, the universe, life itself is an endless cycle, literally the circle of life. That life is a cycle of birth, life, death, and our part is to be part of that cycle and contribute to the next generation in line with that cycle, or in certain religious worldviews, be reborn ourselves. But if time's a circle, if the universe is an internal cycle of life, death, birth, rebirth, life, death, is that inherently meaningful? Because if time is a circle, if it is the circle of life, there is no actual progress. Just repetition of the same old junk over and over and over again like a dog eternally chasing its own tail. Tons of energy being expended but actually going nowhere. The concept of circular time, as mentioned, is not biblical. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning. Time, like the universe, has a beginning. Time is linear. It unfolds in a line as part of God's purpose and God, part of God's plan. Time is linear. Think of time like a river flowing in one direction from the point of creation and flowing outwards as it unfolds as God directs it to be. The Bible gives examples of this uh, view of time again and again. And One of them is in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The point here in this particular scripture is that time, fullness of time had come, and when that moment in time had come, God did something new. He did something different. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That The point is here is that time unfolds from the point of creation into the future. And from this perspective, past, present, and future are not just subjective experiences, but reality. Time is a real thing. Moments in time are ordered by past, present, and future and are objective realities. Things have come into being. The past no longer exists. The present does exist. And the future is potential reality. So, what is the worldview analysis for us here today? The big takeaway for all of us here is that God is the author of creation and oversees it all, including time. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. God is time's Alpha and Omega. He'll begin it. He began it, I should say. He will end it, and God is working in time towards his final victory. You're like, well, what does that have to do with my worldview? This is actually really important. It's really, really important, because how you view time and yourself within time will arise your understanding of the meaning of your life, will arise the understanding and the meaning of your life. See, we stand in the flow, let's think again of time, like a river that's flowing in one direction. If the Genesis account is true, which I believe it is, then we all stand in the flow of God's river of time according to God's sovereign purpose. This means our lives, they're not meaningless. Our lives are not endless repetitions of generations gone you know, before us. Where the universe and thus our families, our lives are going nowhere at all, our lives are headed somewhere. A biblical view of time says today has never happened before and it will never happen again. Whether this is a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday that you're listening to it, today is not a repeat of yet another day. It stands unique on its own. Yes, there are seven days in a week. But on the termination of that seventh day, we start a brand new week, a week that has never happened before, that stands on its own, that stands unique in its opportunities. And the worldview implications of this are you must make good use of your time because God created time. Creation unfolds from that point in time where everything began, and we are somehow in the flow of God's purpose and God's design so you must make good use of your time. In fact, the apostle Paul when he's talking to people in Corinthians and they're worried about their relationship status, he's like, "Stop worrying about your relationship status. The time," he says, "remains very short, and the world as we know it as we know it will soon pass away from this understanding of time. Time is linear. Time's like a river unfolding from creation unto the present unto God's final victory." you don't get a do-over of today. I'm not saying you shouldn't rest, not saying you shouldn't have Sabbath, but you cannot afford to be lazy, indecisive, or unfocused because you don't get today back. It's gone. Secondly, when we put our faith in Jesus, we jump into the river of God's will in time, and we can trust that no matter what happens, He is going to guide us perfectly. My life, even if it's not great right now, is not trapped in an endless cycle of pain, but it's within the hands of God, and God is unfolding His purpose for my life in His time. Even in our most painful moments in life where we question if God is there, we cry out to Him for help, we know our life is connected to His will. And from this understanding that the universe is not eternal, but there is an origin point, and God is the author of it. Our life, then, is about participating in God's purpose. Our greatest, our greatest design is about finding ourselves smack in the middle of God's sovereign will in His river of time. Our days are given to us to contribute by faith and work to the flow of God's kingdom in the world. see many people that when they get up, maybe even you, you're listening to this right now, you don't view yourself as part of God's river of time, as part of God's unfolding purpose and plan. You view your life as isolated and on your own, that you're just another random, meaningless, purposeless human being, as tiny little speck of dust in a very, very big world. And when that's your worldview, there's no meaning in it. But when you understand that time has an origin point in God and that God is unfolding his purpose for creation in time and that you have found yourself somehow within it, your sole mission in life is to fulfill the purpose that God has for you within his sovereign will and sovereign plan, for you to fulfill your brief moment that you have in history to be part of God's river of His kingdom and His purpose flowing out into eternity. Finally, from this worldview of time, we understand that God is in control of it all. He is the Alpha of time, and He is the Omega of time. He is the beginning of creation, and He is the end of time itself. And that means if God can start and finish He can manage everything in between. The second worldview thing that we discover from the story of Genesis is that the universe has a beginning. In Enuma Elish, it's not clear whether the naming of things consists of creation from nothing or not, but other pagan stories like the Atrasis epic which we'll look at next episode begin with a pre-existing universe. But Genesis is clear. In the beginning God created. That is ex nihilo creation. Now, ex nihilo creation or ex nihilio creation, how you pronounce it, tomato tomato, is more in line with the scientific record. We in and I don't you know it doesn't really matter to me how you feel about big bang cosmology, but the essence of the big bang theory is that The universe has had a beginning, and this stands a stark contrast with the view of science before the Big Bang Theory, which believed the kind of Grecian uh, view of the universe, which is that the universe is eternal. So the scripture declares from thousands of years ago what science discovered in modern times, and that is the universe has an absolute beginning to it. But here's something really interesting. The story doesn't focus on nothing into something for very long. It just says, in the beginning, God created. So there is nothing and then something that happens. But the Bible doesn't really talk a whole lot about how nothing became something or God made something out of nothing. It's given a passing statement. It's not the focus of the of the passage. And this is because this was not a big concern for the ancient world. To be honest, it's it's a question that's pondered by those from a wealthy modern culture. People who are not overly concerned where their next meal is coming from are generally the kind of people that are spending a long time thinking about nothing and why something is there instead of that nothing. Instead, in Genesis, the story quickly focuses from this concept of ex nihilio creation to the activity of God in verse 2. It says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, the greatest fear in the ancient world was chaos. Chaos was always symbolized by darkness and water because you could not control the waves of the ocean and people in ancient times they lived in utter terror of chaos because there was no modern technology they lived at the mercy of the elements the world was scary threats abounded there were threats from weather threats from animals threats from disease life was messy it was it was chaos and it seemed to lack any sort of discernible order it was just random What people were really looking for was for someone to make sense of their mess, to bring order to chaos and to settle life down. This is the desire seen in the myth of Enuma Elish. Apsu and Tiamat, they are the watery chaos gods. And through their procreation, they create other little gods. And those little gods wanted order, they wanted to quell the chaos. They wanted to create and build something of meaning, but Apsu and Tiamat were lazy, and they wanted chaos and disorder. So as mentioned, Marduk has the epic, the epic battle between Tiamat, and he fights and kills Grandmama. And in Enuma Elish, the solution to chaos, what we can interpret from Enuma Elish is that the solution to chaos was violence and battle. See, in the pagan myth, in the pagan story, order can only come through more chaos, violence, anger, rebellion, and death. And when we look, we can see this played out in pagan cultures surrounding the nation of Israel. Extreme violence, child sacrifices, self-mutilation, extreme bloodshed. Cultures that were driven entirely by fear, serving the the false gods entirely out of fear. They lived in a culture of death and destruction because their origin story told them that the only pathway to peace was more violence. But in the biblical story, in Genesis, God is not fighting. With the chaos. He's hovering over the void. God is hovering over the waters. He's close to it. And he's not perplexed. We see no description of a disturbed, alarmed, or enraged God wondering why the foundational elements of creation are so messy. He's just close. And then Genesis 1 3 says, Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The solution in Genesis to the chaos was not more disorder, more fear, more violence, but a word from God. And God, in verse 3, doesn't remove it, drive the chaos away. He doesn't destroy it. He doesn't get upset at it. He speaks to it. One word from God. And suddenly, order comes into being. Chaos is subdued and creation is formed. What's the worldview analysis of this? I'm going to be honest with you. I I talked about the ancient world's fear of chaos. Here's my belief. My belief is that people are people. I don't care what era you live in. I don't care what nation you come from. People are people. And while it's fun and intellectually invigorating to ponder the state of nothing and how the universe began, if we're honest, really, if you're honest, be honest with yourself right now. Most of us are not lying awake at night troubled by nothing. We're terrified at the chaos. Our greatest fear is to have life feel like a ship caught in stormy seas. It's murky, it's dark, it's beyond our control, it threatens our life, and we stare at things that seem to be able to destroy, that threaten to destroy our hopes, our dreams, and even life itself. Like, will I graduate? What will happen to me if I really do have cancer? I'm about to become a mother. I'm about to become a father. I have no idea how to raise a child. I come from a completely dysfunctional family. What if I mess up like my parents did? I I don't know what to do. Will my marriage survive this intense season? You mean God wants me to, to plant a church? Are you kidding? I don't know how to do that. You want me to go to this mission field, God? you're you're kidding me it's chaos it's messy look my my son has a life threatening allergy every time we sit at a restaurant we fight to quell the internal chaos that is inside my wife and i it just seems to be bursting the fear i don't know if you ever felt that way before but you your greatest fears in in life weren't the intellectual difficulties of what nothing is, but it's it's the stuff that threatens to just drown you, and drown God's calling and drown your hopes and your dreams. But in Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3, we see God coming close to the messiness and the disorder of the universe. And he, through his word, brings order into chaos. God's solution for the chaos in your life is not more anger. It's not more rage. It's not more violence. And it's not more death. It is a life-giving word from heaven. Because not only is God close but he can make something amazing out of the chaos. See, when combined with this biblical notion of time, God unfolds his purposes from what appears to be a chaotic mess. God unfolds and creates the universe and the world and life itself over what appears to be chaos. And over time, order, purpose, structure, and meaning arise. And for a worldview kind of perspective shift for you, what we discover is that all it takes for God to bring order into our life is for him to speak over our life. Finally, and most importantly. At least for this episode today, because today we're looking at God. Next episode, we're going to look at people. The most important thing that we learn as we compare and contrast Genesis with the pagan stories is that in the Bible, there are not multiple gods. There's only one God. It says, in the beginning, God. No origin story no procreation of Apsu and Tiamat, no war with Marduk, no one else is present, no one else is named, there are no other pantheon of deities, no one else is there, just one god. Seen in Numa Elish, there are many gods, and they all have competing interests, they succumb to weaknesses of strength, weaknesses of character, they face ominous threats And they can even die. Not a single one of them is sovereign. They struggle, they toil, they sweat, they cry. But not in Genesis. Not God in Genesis. He's just there. Stable, as always. And then he speaks. And what he wills in his mind comes to pass exactly as he designed it to be. In Genesis, only one God is mentioned because there is only one God. And because there is only one God, all other gods are not God. All other stories that claim to speak of the existence of other deities, other things that can deal with the chaos and can create immediately are declared to be false. In the beginning, God created. This means he always was. He has no cause. He is the first cause of everything. He is the uncaused cause. He is the, he is the mover, but as we will see later on, he can be moved, especially with the feelings of our infirmities. We'll discover that next episode. But before there was a beginning, there was God. And if there's only one God, that means he's king overall. And the worldview analysis of monotheism is this, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Because there is only one God, nothing and no one else can lay claim to that status of godhood. This means we don't get to pick and choose which God to serve. And we certainly don't get to tell that one God what we will and will not do that he tells us to do or that is part of his will and plan. There's only one right way to live, and it's the way that our creator tells us. Everything else that claims divinity is false, and anyone who tells you that there are other gods is a liar, Genesis says. There are no other gods. And this God that we see, this God of the Bible in Genesis is totally sovereign. He is the creator of all. He is perfectly good. And he is worthy of our deepest devotion. See, this is the kind of God the Israelites knew they were serving. They had heard it through oral tradition since their nation began, and God called Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees. But here, around Sinai, as Moses began to write the words of the law, the Pentateuch that became the foundational books of the Scriptures, we see... A God who is strong. A God who with the simple articulation of his will can bend chaos into creation. By the power of his spoken word alone, energy and physical laws came into existence and organized themselves in such a manner as they formed the universe and sparked, created life itself. This creation story underscores the power of a word from god and this creation story underscores the power of the bible because the bible is god's word and because the bible is god's word the same supernatural sovereign creative power that spoke the universe and life itself and time itself into existence is resident within the pages of scripture and so when we read our bible we come in contact with that same power. And when we go to God in prayer with our chaos, we come in contact with that same power. And that supernatural creative power will impact our life and change the world around us when it's proclaimed. Genesis is powerful. And while I'm thankful that yes, there are strong arguments to be made as to why Genesis can knock Charles Darwin off of his big old high horse, For me, what I love about the book of Genesis is not that it speaks to a 19th century guy, but that it speaks to all people of all times by addressing addressing very clearly the deepest needs, the deepest questions of the human soul. And you may have had a really bad origin story when it comes to your family, but when you view yourself as part of God's family now in the church, and how that God is the originator of all time, and that He can bring things into being that did not exist prior, but also that He can speak to the mess and chaos. Oh man, is that ever cool! So always remember, as you're reading Genesis, Genesis is not just about Darwin. Genesis is about the direction of your soul, your life, so that you can stand confidently in your present and lean forward into your future, knowing that God has the whole world in his hands. And that includes you. Thanks for listening. Please hit share. Please send this to your friends. And as always, have a great day.